Hi, I'm Lara Bennett, and you're listening to Highway Butterfly, the stories of Neil Cassell. Neil was a gifted singer, songwriter, musician, and friend to many. He released 14 albums as a solo artist and collaborated on countless projects with other musicians. After his passing in 2019, his friends and family created the Neil Casal Music Foundation to provide instruments and music lessons to students in New York and New Jersey and to support organizations that offer musicians mental health care. One of the featured projects of the newly formed foundation is the tribute album, Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Casal, a sprawling 41-song collection bringing together a galaxy of rock and roots luminaries. We've asked the contributing musicians to share their memories of Neil and their stories of making the record. Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Casal is out on November 12th. Pre-order the album and learn more about the Neil Casal Music Foundation at neilcasalmusicfoundation.org. Hey everybody, welcome to the Highway Butterfly Podcast. I'm your guest host, Dave Schools. I'm uh, going to bring in a very special friend for a number of reasons in a second, but I just wanted to give you a little background about my relationship with Neil Casal and this project. I first met Neil when we put the band Hardworking Americans together, and I'm not going to even say the year because it just tells me how quickly time goes by. But we became instant friends, and of course, we spent a lot of time on the bus, a lot of time in the studio, a lot of time listening to music that we loved, and uh, it was just instant. We emptied our wallets at many independent record stores around the country and had a great time doing so. Uh, And it was uh, a shock when Neil took his own life, but uh, not too soon thereafter, we decided, Gary Waldman, his longtime manager and friend, that we would try to make a tribute record to honor Neil's legacy and uh, put some of the music out into the world. There was a lot of it. So we got together with uh, Grammy-winning Jim Scott, a longtime friend of mine, and convened a lot of incredible players at Jim's studio in Southern California called Pliers. And we've got a 41-track 5LP, 3CD box set coming at you November 12th. And that's that. So being your guest host, bear with me. I'd like to bring a very special friend in, someone who knew Neil, and uh, someone who got us started. This is the first artist to record the first track for the Highway Butterfly record, uh, Billy Strings. How you doing, Billy? Dave, how are you, man? I am, I'm good. So starting out the Highway Butterfly session, you were the first artist we recorded and uh, so you were one of f- maybe 14 songs we got in the can at Pliers before the whole world shut down. Right. Um, but the great thing was that you were the first, and it was such a successful day. How did you go about picking the song, All the Luck in the World? That one has always sort of just spoke to me in a kind of beautifully depressing, melancholy sort of way. That's something about Neil. There's a, there's a lot of melancholy, but it's the beautiful kind of melancholy. It is. There's something beautiful about, I think, an artist, even though it's painful. Even though, you know, like, an artist is, like, willing to just play the music no matter what's going on with them. No matter how hard it is, the music's always there or something like that. Like, you know, just the old rocker who's been on stage for, you know, like Billy Kreutzman or something, you know? Yeah. (laughs) You got that glazed-over look in your eyes, you know what I mean? Like, it was like... 
dang, this guy's been through some shit and seen some stuff. But, you know, when you're up there playing or whatever, like, it kind of goes away. That is just a beautiful melancholy in itself, you know? Well, that's right. I've, I've always found that a heartbreak situation where it's all I can think about despite all the distractions of a young touring life um, mm -hmm. on a tour bus and... I could never get past that. Oh, my heart's broken. I feel melancholy and sad. But those couple of hours on stage, it mm -hmm. is like it's still there, but it, it hurts a lot less. It's almost like you can uh, transmute it somehow. Let the music do its thing. It heals the heart and it unites people. So let's take a pause for a second and we'll be right back afterwards. You see choice in front of you. I know it's hard to make You feel you will come through You feel how everyone has changed But they know who you are And they're watching what you do And they say that they So that was all the luck in the world And uh, it's, it's amazing Let's talk a little bit about how you met Neil. Were you aware of that song before you met him or did it go the other way? You met him and then you started digging in. Yeah, it went that way. I met him and started digging in. You know, the first thing that I really heard from Neil was Circles Around the Sun. And that was back around the time of uh, the Fairly Well Grateful Dead 50th, you know, shows. And um, I think my girlfriend was, you know, doing yoga or cleaning the house or something. And she was listening to that Circles Around the Sun album. And I'm like, what are you listening to? You know, this is pretty cool. Because she was listening to it uh, for like a day or two, you know, and I kind of caught on. I was like, what is this? Oh, it's Circles Around the Sun. put two and two together that it was the same cat that I saw with you guys in Hardworking Americans and stuff in which I loved that band and I had quite an experience seeing you guys on a, in a packed like middle of Broadway downtown Nashville you know and oh the street gig yeah yes, dude yeah that was man a few years ago it was kind of when I not well I don't know it wasn't long after I had moved to Nashville and I was young and you know, just checking out the city and, you know, holy smokes, there's going to be a great concert down there. And I already knew uh, the guys from Leftover Salmon and stuff, as well as Tim O'Brien and Brian Sutton. And those guys played before Leftover Salmon. So, you know, I really wanted to go down there to see Brian Sutton play gu guitar. And then it was like, okay, then Leftover Salmon's playing, and then Hardworking Americans. And I had these little gel tabs that somebody gave me and my, my, <laughs> my girlfriend. And I said, hey, screw it, let's eat these. So we... We ate one and we went down there in a little Uber ride. And by the time we got down there, you know, it was very different. And, uh, and we walked into Ernest Tubbs record shop and to seek refuge from the, you know, <laughs> tourists. <laughs> and so we went in there and I started looking at some records and I was looking at this beautiful record and I realized the, 
ceiling fan up above was like making the whole room swirl. So I was like, we got to get out of here. And that's when the music kind of started. And then the music was great. Leftover Salmon set was chaotic and just crazy as ever. But you guys came on and I was very uh, inspired and, you know, in a really good headspace there to see that concert. And uh, Neil's playing was just kind of soaring through those buildings there, you know, and his the effects and stuff that he was doing and the just the way that he blended into that band. And, and, and it was almost like he wasn't there in a way. He was so good that it, it never poked out or nothing. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It, yeah, that's what I mean. It was like he just knew how to be in there without poking out here and there. And and, and he just added such an amazing flavor to it. And, and man, that set was just killer, dude. I was really blown away. Thank you. That's the thing about Neil's playing was it didn't poke out, you know, except for when he wanted it to. But if something happened like he broke a string and actually had to drop out in the middle of a song, which he never did. But if he wasn't playing, boy, did it poke out. That's what poked out is when Neil wasn't there. Right. Because he was such a guidestone of time and taste and tone, really. The tone and the, the sort of, uh, you know, just unhurried, patient delivery. I think that's what Neil had a lot of too. Maybe something that I think I lack a little bit, which is kind of a tasteful restraint. Yeah, I, I right there with you, and I'm a bass player, so that's a no-no. But <laughs> we are who we are, Billy. You know? Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm not <laughs> saying it's a bad thing, man. I, I I like to play stuff with teeth, and that kind of leans forward. That's just my style. But like, I love players like that. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I really like to listen to. You know. Yeah, it's it's uh you were talking about cats and hearing them and you know the whole purpose of that project was to simply be set break music for those fairly well concerts. And and so I remember Neil talking about them. He was so enthusiastic because it was more of an experiment. It right. allowed him to to kind of come at making music from a way different angle where the whole thing was just to sort of sit in the groove in an unhurried way and get out of your own way right. and sort of let the group mind take effect and take the music for a journey, which of course takes the listener for a journey. What I don't think anyone could have seen coming was the phenomenal response to that set break and walk-in music. People, <laughs> deadheads, you know, hundreds of thousands of them were like, what the heck was that? So right. it, it got released. I mean, and that's, that's sort of an amazing thing. So what was it like for you at Plyer's to have cats as your backing band, basically. Man, those guys are badass, dude. You know what I mean? And, and I don't get to play with like a, a band, you know, with drums and keys and, and stuff a lot, you know? So, so yeah, playing with those guys is awesome, man. It was, it felt really easy, you know, easy to play.
Tell us a little bit about the experience that day. What happened when you arrived at the studio? What was it like to meet Jim Scott? And, and had you met those guys before, the Cats guys? I had, like, been around them a few times, you know, I think maybe backstage and stuff. But, you know, maybe even backstage at, at Panic at the Ryman. The thing was, I was just like a kid that, you know, it's not that I didn't know anybody or people didn't know me. I just was kind of standing there in the corner and didn't really have much to say. But that's, you know, like where where I think I first ran into those guys like in person. Oh, and then there was um, the festival that we all kind of played on the same thing until like four in the morning, Aiken. That's where me and Neil did first kind of sort of link up for the first time and get chatting and stuff about jamming together and stuff. And he took some beautiful photographs that night that I cherish, you know. Fantastic photographer, fly on the wall. Never even see it happening until you see the photo and you're like, how did you get that shot? Yeah. So did you, did you guys ever get to play together, you and Neil? Yeah, um, that night we actually jammed a, a fair amount. Like I said, it was a it was a, a late night jam till about four in the morning, and and he came up and played with us for a bit. And but we were talking about getting together more, you know, coming out there to California and doing some stuff like with kind of me as a guest with Circles Around the Sun or something like that. That's exactly right. That was uh, the last project that Neil and I were talking about. Yeah, um, because I could never get him to get into the studio with his own songs. I had about 14 demos he had sent me sitting on the desktop of my laptop. And I every so often just call him and go, Hey, what's going on? You know, let's maybe re- do some recording. And he had suggested that I work on the other side of the glass for Billy strings and cats, this conceptual record. Mm-hmm. And I know they had done the Russo kind of guest cats. And I, I liked that idea. I think to me that that takes the pressure off of everybody. You know, to me, when I walked into Players that day and met Jim and um, Cats showed up and, you know, some of those dudes were already there and some guys were coming in from, like, camping down by the river and whatever. And I'm like, man, these guys are cool, man. And, you know, it made me feel, like, happy because, well, here we are. You know, we're doing it. We're doing what me and Neil had talked about, you know, even though he's not here with us. But... In a way, you know, he was. It's his song we were doing and stuff and, you know, it, everything like that. So that's what it felt. It felt like that. It felt right. It felt like, well, me and Neil were talking about me coming out to California to do some shit in the studio. So, like, now that I'm in California, like, with his band and, and you and, out, you know, out there, it just felt, well, shit, this is what he wanted or this is what we were talking about anyway. So, yeah, I, I picked up on that right away. I mean, and. You know, I call Jim's place the happiest place on earth because, yeah. uh, you know, you walk into that room and the first thing you see is the scale of the place. Yeah, it's giant. And then you see all the weird tapestries hanging on the walls. And yeah. then you see your name in lights Major over the vibes. Dolly Parton pinball machine. <laughs> Major vibes, yeah. Yeah, it was definitely just when I walked in there, I had to, like, walk around for a bit, you know. Like, hey, good to meet you. I'm going to need about five, 10 minutes to just walk around and gaze before I can actually have a conversation here because, you know, I, otherwise I'm just going to be looking and say, yeah, 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 that's cool. But, but what's this thing? <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, I discovered instruments I didn't even know exist. And then after discovering that they do exist, they're plugged in and ready to record. Well, that's the other thing. Everything's <laughs> ready to roll. Yeah. Something I was walking by and I just like, 
you know, put one finger on like a keyboard or something, and it was like, mm, was like oh shit, this thing's actually on, <laughs> you know. And then yeah. you, like, all the all the you know electronic percussion and everything's on. It's like, dude, we can play for hours in here. It's a fun idea factory, and it what it does is it it just puts everybody at ease, and the big it fosters the hang because yeah. you know it can be pretty awkward walking into a studio setting. A lot of times they're super clinical, you know, a little too clean and antiseptic for people like us. And, and then, you know, there's like never really a sort of centralized place. There might be some hang lounge, you know, off in a dark corner somewhere, but it's all business. Jim's is just like, Oh, look, a bunch of eight tracks. Let's pop this Boston eight track in and have a dance party and get to know each other and maybe have a little lunch. And then maybe we'll talk about the arrangement of the song. Yeah. And it's like, after that, you go in and record it, and it's pretty darn easy. It sounds great. Yeah, that's what it felt like, too. It was pretty laid back and loved working on that with you, man. It was, it was really a beautiful experience, and uh, you know, I think it turned out beautifully. I do love that recording. You know? It's fantastic, and it, it showed us that our idea worked, you know, at least for you. But having it be the first attempt... You know, yeah. it's kind of like the pitcher throws the first pitch and you hit it out of the park. You yeah. know, the track is beautiful. You, your performance is devastatingly beautiful. The guitar and the vocal and just the whole vibe, you really captured that melancholy beauty that you mentioned earlier that is inherent in Neil's songs. Um, and so for us, it was the start of this journey. Um, and But we had this, like, win in our pocket of where this really, you know, we got a song tracked 90% of the way in one day and the artist has left the studio and they seem happy oh, and yeah. pleased with everything. And, you know, and then the next day someone else came in and we did it with a bunch of different people. Game on. Game on, exactly. And so thank you for, for really, uh, you know, proving that our idea had legs. And it, I, I think it gave us the confidence when it did finally shut down 13 songs later that, you know, we managed to get 26 more songs recorded mm -hmm. remotely um, all over the country. Everybody went above and beyond. And I think a lot of it had to do because we released your single and we put it out there and people could listen to it and look at it and go, so this is what this project is about, you know, and, and it gave them confidence. And when an artist has confidence, they can kind of do anything. Give them a microphone and a decent engineer, and the artist will come through. So for me, thank you from Gary and Jim and I for, for like giving us that beautiful thing to have in our pocket. It really set the tone for the whole project. Now, I know you've been working hard. Um, you're back out there on the road. And one of the things we always talk about with Neil was he just loved putting people together. You know, he was very intrigued with the idea of like you and I and cats, like trying to coalesce something. Um, and everybody pretty much said like, you know, Neil introduced me to so-and-so and then we did a project together and, mm. and I've got a new friend. Thanks to Neil. Um, what do you think you can carry forward in that idea? Have you met or worked with anyone that you may have met because of Neil? I mean, the idea I'm thinking of is Jonathan Wilson, who just produced your new record, was a longtime friend of Neil's and also has a song on Highway Butterfly. Right. 
Did you know that before you started working with Jonathan? I knew that they were um, homies because actually, or actually, no, I guess I didn't know that they were homies until I was in the studio and I, I showed up one day in my, my Neil jacket. And then Jonathan was like, holy shit, you know, and he's like, turn around and I, you know, showed him my, he's like, oh, Neely, you know, and, and, you know, and then, and then I realized that they were close and, um, like, yeah, you know, he was, he was kind of buddies with everyone, you know? He really, he really was. I mean, I can't think of anyone that, that doesn't have the utmost respect for Neil, you know, and Jonathan, of course, recorded everything himself, played everything himself, recorded it himself, and then allowed Jim to mix it, which I thought was, was really gracious. And he did a fantastic job on your record. I mean, I, I, I really thought that was a match made in heaven. I, I figured you two guys would hit it off. Yes, sir. I really like like working with him too, and just hanging. You know, Jonathan is a super good hang man, and and just having somebody with that kind of vibe in the studio is a is a vibe. <laughs> you know, kind of like absolutely having you in the studio is like that, man. Just a big old happy feller to have around. You know, and I like that. Studios, it it should be that way. Yeah. It should be welcoming and vibey and happy. And, you know, I just don't think you can make the kind of music we love, uh, you know, with some A&R guy pacing circles in the control room or someone with a cat of nine tails flogging, you know, your band. It's like, we got to We're trying to make a vibe here. So you mentioned the jacket. Can you talk a little more about the jacket? I had two of them made by this guy. Uh, his name's Richard Mink and he does airbrush art. But it's just on the back of a denim jacket. I had him paint this beautiful portrait of Neil. I have one made of Jeff Austin as well. Um, oh, wow. So I kind of can carry those guys with me, you know, uh, and they got my back, you know, on, on the road, you know. Two good guys to have your back, for sure. I miss those guys, man. You know, it really sucks. But um, there's also a part of part of me that understands that they're kind of always – always with us no matter what man their their music and their memory will remain you know and and that's it's just an important thing to carry on you know i absolutely agree and i mean without neil's music he'd just be gone you know i mean you could get together with another mutual friend and talk about it but uh the music keeps them here with us while we still walk around on on this earth um, yeah that they'd love to see you fall This podcast is brought to you by Backline, the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub. Launched in 2019, Backline gives artists, crews, and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources. Backline provides individuals with case management and offers virtual support groups as well as yoga, meditation, and breath work. To donate, learn more, or get in touch for personalized care, visit backline.care. That's B-A-C-K-L-I-N-E dot C-A-R-E. There's one last thing I want to talk to you about before I let you go, because I know you, you have things to do or dreams to conceive of. Um, <laughs> do you remember the day that 
word got out that Neil had had died. Do you remember that you and I were at Vance Powell Studio in Nashville that very day? Yeah. Do you remember what we were talking about? Mental health and you know all that because I was going through a lot around that time too, man. I you know, which I've you know I've gotten a real good kind of hold on it. I'm in a much better spot, but I think around that time which was probably like 2019 or something. Yep. Yeah, so like I was hitting it hard, man, and I had been for the last, you know, it was like 200 gigs a year for like, you know, almost like 10 years, you know, or something. And I was really starting to get burnt out and having these panic attacks and could not kind of stand being on the road and just kind of freaking out, you know. And uh, and so, yeah, around that time I remember talking uh, a lot about that stuff because like I wear my heart on my sleeve in that way. It's too hard for me to pretend like I'm not mad, sad, uh, hungry, tired, <laughs> you know, what I, like I don't pretend, you know, if I'm like pissed off, you're going to know it. Or if I'm sad or if, you know, it, you know, but like, so I'm not going to like be all having panic attacks and having really bad anxiety issues and not like talk about it. You know what I mean? Because I don't know. For one thing, I think it's good to talk about because people see me talk about it and they're like, oh, shit. Well, he deals with the same shit. That's, you know, if anything, makes him feel not alone. That's <laughs> exactly right. I mean, I have had my share and had my share of addictions and recoveries and um, and it's a bumpy road. And yeah, talk about it. Uh, 200 gigs a year for like 10 or 15 years takes its toll and there are things we do. Um, I remember that day because you had just played with us at the Ryman and it was so much fun, that Ryman widespread panic acoustic run. And then we were over at Vance's and Vance's is such a great hang and just what a great guy and a great place. And uh, something that you and I were talking about that really struck me was how we get hit up by, by fans. You know, they, they feel like they know us well enough to sort of lay their troubles at our doorstep, you know, and because we are sensitive people and um, we want everyone to be happy, we want to try to help them in any way we can. Um, and, and you were talking about how it kind of gets exhausting and there's just not enough time to take care of yourself and all these other people. Um, and yeah. I get it. It happens quite a bit, you know, and I think that's, um, that's maybe one kind of thing that I have to deal with because I talk about my troubles or my, my past or my anxiety or because I'm honest with, you know, like you said, you know, I get messages on Instagram and stuff like, you know, my, my brother committed suicide, but your music, you know, helped me through it. Or, you know, I, my son died from a heroin overdose, but you know, you're really helping me and stuff. And I'm just like, you know, I talked to my therapist about this and she's, she said some, some psychologist somewhere said something like the worst, one of the most like hard, toughest things in his life was the incredible positive impact he's had on people because, you know, then people just like kind of expect that from him. There are times when I don't have the capacity, the mental capacity to help others because I got to take care of myself, you know, in that moment. And there are times where I can help others, you know, and I want to. 
But but there are times where I have to, you know, set that boundary and, and realize that I need to take care of myself first and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I think like being a being such a, a positive light and stuff, you know, a bright light can really kind of be hard sometimes because, you know, people sort of expect you to put out their flames, you know. That's right. You might not have any, you know, water left, you know, to, to put out the fire with, so. That's water is exactly right. I mean, my wife gave me the expression, I need time to recharge my well. You know, I mean, it's it's hard enough. It's physically demanding to be on the road. And, and heck, yeah, it's fun. We get to play music for a living. <laughs> and we're we're kind of hit the lottery on that one. But at the same time, it's, you're not in your bed. You miss your, your loved ones. You miss your pets. If you have kids, you miss those. Or maybe you don't. I don't have kids, so I don't know. But that in and of itself yeah. is, is exhausting. Um, yeah. And then to try to take on everyone else's, whether they're accolades or just to like take in their pain, because what we learn is that talking about it kind of makes a little bit of it go away. It lessens the burden of it. Um, and, and that's just what the foundation, the Neil Casal music foundation hopes to accomplish is to help like music cares and backline and Nucci space. And any one of these, if you've got a problem out there on the road, you know, you don't have to deal with it alone. I mean, you know, you can always call me and I'll pick up the phone. Um, But not a lot of other people know that there are resources and how valuable they are. There's also too, like, I know that I could always call you, but you know, there might be a time where I get in some headspace where I just feel like I can't, or I just, I, you know, even if I want to reach out, I just like won't because I'm too ashamed or I'm this or that or whatever. But, you know, through backline and stuff like that, I think, it's, you know, the awareness, just people being open and talking about it and kind of, you know, getting rid of that sort of like stigma that I don't know where that even exists from, like super old school, like, you know, oh, just be a man or whatever, yeah. you know, like, I don't know, like, I, I don't know, like I said, I can't, I can't pretend that I'm, I'm not tough, you know what I mean? Like when it comes to that, like, I, I, I'm fragile. I have been broken before, you know, with anxiety and panic attacks and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, there was a time where when I was younger and I was on the road and I was really over-functioning. I mean, I was driving the van. I was loading the trailer. I was selling merch after the gig. I was, you know, settling up at the end of the show. I was doing every single thing there was, every job there was to do on the road. That was me. And, um, I was over-functioning like a madman, but I, it, you know, I was young and I was able to do it for a second. And there were moments where, you know, people that were on the road with me or something were having really bad trouble, you know, like I'm having anxiety or man, my chest feels tight or whatever. And like back then I used to kind of be like, man, just pull it together, dude. Like, or may, you know, maybe you shouldn't be on the road if you can't handle it, you know, kind of thing. And then when, you know, back in 2019, when all of a sudden five o'clock in the morning in the middle of nowhere, I, I'm hit with my first like real panic attack that I've ever had in my life. I thought I was having a heart attack. You know what I mean? I thought I was like dying, you know, like my hands were tingling and I couldn't breathe. Felt like, uh, you know, somebody was standing on my chest and I was like, I wanted to call 911, you know, and I went outside and walked in the grass and I kind of calmed myself down a little bit, but like, that's when I realized how 
shitty I was sort of being to like my bandmates and stuff when they were dealing with that because I had no idea how bad it actually was, you know. And then I, I literally was like, dude, I'm so sorry that I didn't like sympathize with you more when you were having panic attacks, like, because I didn't know. I didn't know. You know what I mean? I just was kind of ignorant to the whole thing. Like, oh, what do you mean anxiety? Everybody has anxiety. It's called, you know, life, right. you know, <laughs> but, but it's a lot different when you're overworked or you're, you just got too much on your mind or, you know, like my mind, it just goes and 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 goes. And I just can't settle it down sometimes and, and thinking about the future, thinking about the past. And it's like, that's what gets me into trouble is if I'm not just right here right now. Yeah. Just learn how to get a hold on that. It's been a journey for sure, man. But um, I tell you what, man, I was talking to Jeff Austin right up, right up until all that too, like, you know, texting back and forth with him about that stuff because I was going through it pretty bad at that time. And it was like me and him were both like struggling. And I was like, man, I'm, you know, I found this therapist and, you know, I'm doing this or that, you know, and basically like trying to make him feel like he's not alone either, you know, like, man, I, I know what you're going through, man. We're road dogging hard for one thing. You know, you're in the limelight. You got people online talking shit about you every day or whatever, you know, and you see that. And for him, he's just trying to get his shit back together with, it, you know, the band and stuff after kind of, you know, yonder and that whole separation, you know, and it's just too much, man. That's, you know, and he's with a family and everything. And I was just was like, you know, it just like really sucked because it seemed like, we were going through like the same thing, but I didn't realize how much more severe what he was going through was, you know? And um, it just, it goes to show that you can never tell. You're absolutely right. I mean, very few people saw the depth of the depression and delusion that Neil was going through. You know, I, right. I think I could scroll back through some texts. And in fact, we were probably talking about Jeff Austin. Um, scroll back through the text. They're gone now. Cause I guess the phone's been shut off. So they've disappeared. I should have recorded them, but uh, you know, he, un he understood, he understood. And I should have picked up on that because I don't think you can understand that unless you've been in that space. And you mentioned it earlier about, yeah, there's a, a whole raft of people I could call that would gladly listen to me talk about this, but I'm a little too ashamed to do it. And uh, that's, that's, that's a tough spot. And I, I don't really know how to, how to like help people get out of it, except just keep hammering home the message that you're, you're not really alone. And uh, maybe we educate and destigmatize so that our friends can yeah. see that this is going on because yeah, I don't know if it's a toxic male patriarchy a tough guy attitude thing. Um, you know, that's that crying's for girls. Come on. That's uh, I had, <laughs> you know, like my uncles and my grandfather, were like that you know get up kid it's just a, yeah, you only like, broke your femur get up <laughs> you know i was watching like madman or something like that and i think it was like you know like the therapist having a therapist with like the t word you know what right. i mean like wait he, he has a, a he sees a therapist like what what's wrong with him <laughs> like you know what i mean like it's not like that man like i love my therapist you know and i can't believe that i've been actually talking to her for like almost three years now, you know, and she's become a really great, you know, like 
friend and somebody that I've really, you know, like for one thing helped me sort out my in the moment stuff that was kind of just making it hard to be on the road. And then, you know, as we get deeper and deeper, I mean, digging into my childhood trauma and, uh, you know, being surrounded by meth heads when I was a teenager and, you know, living in a freaking meth house, you know, when I was a little kid and like, you know, all that stuff and like sorting through all that, you know, and, and instead of just like, cause it hurts still, you know, to see my little 11, 12 year old self with no food in the fridge and no, nowhere to go. No, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, but like, I've kind of like come to terms with it in a way through all the therapy and stuff. And like, it's made me a lot stronger and my relationship with my family is, is, has improved greatly and everything. And man, it just really helps to talk about it and it hurts. You know, you got to go through it to grow through yeah. it. You know what I mean? That's right. Like, That's right. It, it's painful, you know, and it's not always fun to talk about stuff like that. And then you have to find somebody that you really trust. Like I've told my therapist things that I've never told anybody else. You know what I mean? things that have been deep, deep secrets for me my entire life since I was a little kid that I would never tell anyone. And it's like the fact that I've gotten comfortable enough with, you know, her to kind of dig deeper. And, you know, like I said, we're talking about stuff that I never thought I would confront. You know what I mean? Stuff that I never thought I would talk about. And uh, the talk talking about it, and it's like after – these sessions and stuff and after getting into this really deep conversation about that stuff and um you just feel better you know you feel you might not feel better immediately but once you can integrate the conversation you had into your life it's like it's a huge relief i mean i i resented my mother for a long time man and and that's a really really shitty feeling yeah to to be angry at you know your mom for doing whatever she did when you were a teenager, you know, and, you know, there were times where, you know, I, like, I really kind of resented her and I didn't know how to handle it, you know, and, and I can honestly say that that's not even close to how it is anymore. I mean, our relationship is, is great. You know what I mean? Like I, I love her to death, you know, she's my mom and we talked about stuff, you know, and like all the things that were unsaid, we talked about and like things are better now you know it's it's amazing isn't it i mean i resented my parents for getting divorced and then i resented that resentment in myself so i just wound up looking in the mirror every day and going you're just a terrible person well, oh that's the worst <laughs> you know i'll in in therapy and stuff i'll be like that you know and i'll be like oh yeah well well why do you say that oh well because i'm a piece of shit or whatever well, hold on, hold on, wait, wait, wait. And, I, and I'm just kidding, you know, kind of just joking. Yeah, I'm, I'm a piece of shit. Why'd you just say that about yourself? Oh, well, I was just kind of kidding. But but no, but why'd you say it? Yeah, they'll pin your ass to the wall. <laughs> I guess because, I don't know, why did I say that? Do I really think I'm a piece of shit? What's going on here? How come I'm not being kind to myself, man? What the fuck? I, I, I'm kind to other people, you know? Like, and, and I started realizing that. Like, man, you got to be nice to yourself, man. Like, you can't always be so hard on yourself, even about the music and stuff. Like, you know, lately I've been, 
you know, I gave myself a little pat on the back when I won a Grammy. You know what I mean? Like, good job, kid. You know, good fucking job, brother. You know, you're doing all right, kid. You know, and that that's important. I think it's really important. Yeah, because uh, you can get all the congratulation notes from all of your peers. You know, I mean, that's a that's a peer award anyway. It's like, wow, there's no higher honor. The same people in my profession think I deserve this. Everybody's always told me that, you know, you're great or whatever, but I've never thought it. I hear you. And and I've always thought that, you know what I mean? I don't know. I've never thought so. So basically that was like kind of a, um, a validating moment for myself. Like, you know, maybe I don't suck. You know what else was when you guys had me out at the Ryman, you know what I mean? Like that, that really, you know, I meant to say that earlier when you brought that up during that time I was struggling a lot with, you know, like I said, anxiety and stuff and just self doubt. And am I ever, am I going to be able to do this? You know, I mean, the music is just, it's, I don't know. But then all of a sudden widespread panic invites you to come sit in with them. And it's like, damn, like that just makes you feel really good. You know what I mean? Like, and not to mention you have a great time hanging and just picking and, you know, bullshitting backstage and stuff. It was just really, like I needed that at that time. I think we did too. You know, we did yeah. too. And, and that really got us from beyond like the texting relationship to, oh, we can hang together, you know, and we can make <laughs> music together. Oh, and we can share about things that, that bug us or thrill us, you know. And to me, it was music that started it. It was music that cemented it, you know. And in a lot of ways, it was Neil that brought us together because there you were down in front of the Acme in Nashville, watching hardworking Americans. And, and, you know, to me, that is, that's what we do. You know, we bring people together and I appreciate the fact that Neil in some way brought us together and enabled us to work together on the highway butterfly project and all the luck in the world. You know, I truly love you. You did deserve that Grammy. You're doing okay. (laughs) And, uh, you're catching some pretty nice fish and you made a great new record. So, um, yeah i love you billy thank you so much for joining us thank you man i love you too bro and uh good luck you got a gig in burlington is that tonight or tomorrow tomorrow night tonight we're just chilling watching forensic files so okay well great well i'll let you get back to it thanks for joining us grammy winning billy strings everyone thanks for listening to highway butterfly the stories of neil casal Tune in next week to hear more from the artists who made this tribute album a reality. Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell is out on November 12th. All album net proceeds go to the Neil Cassell Music Foundation. You can pre-order the album and learn more at neilcassellmusicfoundation.org. Osiris.